We'll begin reading this morning at verse 16 of Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your Word that we would have hearts ready to receive it. And may you apply it to our lives for your own glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in the old uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the divines there answer in their first question, of what is our purpose in life? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and... To enjoy Him forever. And so we acknowledge that that is why we were created. Not only to enjoy God, or rather not only to glorify God, but also to enjoy God. And we see that in the very first few chapters of the Bible. God created man. And in Genesis 2, He puts man in the garden, paradise. He walks with them. He fellowships with them. But then came the fall. And so after the fall, man was separated from God. There was this distance placed between God and sinful men. And yet as Christians, we enjoy the promise of God that our fellowship with Him has been and will be restored. And I say that because, uh, as we'll see a little later, um, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. We've been justified by faith. Paul teaches this in Romans 5, Romans 8. And yet, when we die, we pass from this life into the next, into God's very presence, His full presence, where we will enjoy that forever. Even when we get our resurrected bodies, we'll dwell with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth. And so Christians are promised the presence of God, that restored presence, which is a very powerful thing, as I hope we'll see this morning. What we've seen so far as we've looked at the great commission given to the church by our Lord Jesus Christ is that it's all based upon this foundation that as he was raised from the dead and went and ascended into heaven, he was granted all authority in heaven and also on the earth. Jesus is king. Jesus is king of kings. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's Lord in heaven and now today on the earth. But as Hebrews says, we don't see all things put into subjection to him. Not all things are put under his feet as of yet. And yet that's the promise. And so based on that, he says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And so we considered what it is that we are to do. We're to make disciples of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? By going, baptizing, and teaching. And so, assumed in this text of Scripture is the preaching of the gospel. Whether it's officially by a man called to do that, or by any member of the church telling the gospel, as Acts 1 
or Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, tell us being salt and light and having that ready defense for the hope that is within us, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. And so then as a church, we're to be about uh, outreach. We are to be about evangelism, disseminating, spreading the good news of Christ wherever He takes us. And those who are converted, they come into the church. They are initiated into the body, the visible uh, church of Jesus Christ through baptism. And we looked at that. And so those who come in and those who are baptized, believers, and we believe they're children, uh, they come into the church and they are discipled. They come under the lordship of Christ in that way and are taught his commandments as he requires here in the Great Commission. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so when we think about that, we think about this great task of making disciples of all the nations, not just providence, but the church at large through the ages. And we think about our part in that. It can be, and it has been at times for me, a daunting task. As I mentioned last time, this was given before electricity. This was given before social media and the horseless carriage before the automobile. They were to go out. This is the commission. And then Paul covered himself a large territory, uh, a lot of ground for the sake of the gospel of Christ in his day. And there were times early on in my ministry when I had this pressure of growing the church. Well, I don't build the church. Jesus builds the church, right? But I kind of felt this burden. I would walk out of the front door. Where do I go? What do I do? And so it can be overwhelming. But as you know, if you're a Christian, just the Christian life can be overwhelming at times. This past week, I was talking on the phone. Someone was calling trying to sell me something. And this lady, she said that she was converted during COVID. She's a Jewish lady. And she thought everything was going to be great, and she talked about this trial, that trial, and I got to spend time on the phone with her, telling her, well, this is part of the Christian life, and here's what God's doing in your life, through these trials. And that was a blessing, but the point is, the Christian life is not always easy. In fact, the very power we need to live it comes from Christ and His Spirit, as He says in John 15, 5. And so, as we think about that, Where is it that we must turn for the strength and power that we need to live the Christian life and to do the work of the church? We turn to the Lord, right? We find that in our text here. We turn to Him for strength for the Christian life and for the work of the church. And so what we see from this passage is that Christ's presence is our power. That's our power we need to get up in the morning, to live the Christian life, and yes, to do the work of the church. That which He's called us to do. And He is our strength. And so, basically, there are two headings this morning, two things I'd like for us to think about. And the first one is uh, the promise of His presence. And the second is the power of His presence in our lives. So first of all, then, the power of His presence Uh, What Jesus talks about here is not an off-the-cuff thing. It's not plan B. This was promised in the Old Testament. Time and again, God made these promises. And we got glimpses in the Old Testament of the fulfillment 
of the promise, which Christ here fulfills throughout the Old Testament. Think about this. Again, in the garden, Genesis 2, God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He's fellowshipping with them. That fellowship was lost because of sin. And so God promised through the woman this seed would come, the Lord Jesus, Genesis 3.15, and He would overcome and overturn the disaster that took place in the fall, in man's fall, our fall, with Adam into sin. And so in the patriarchs and their lives, we start to see those who are redeemed, such as Enoch. Remember Enoch? It says in Genesis 5 that he walked with God for 300 years, children. So at the beginning, men lived to be along or to have an old age. It says Enoch walked with God for 300 years, years, had sons and daughters, and he was not for God took him. So Enoch walked with God. He fellowshiped with God. Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 9, it says, walked with God. And in Genesis 17, just after um, God called Abraham out of darkness, out of the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, he called him to himself in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. And in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. And so by the time we get to Leviticus chapter 26, where God has taken Abraham's descendants and started to gather them and is giving the orders for the tabernacle and that sort of thing. In Leviticus 26, 12, here is the promise of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. God said, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Right? You might want to turn with me to um, Ezekiel chapter 37. Hold your finger in Matthew. I'd like for you to see this, Ezekiel 37. Because here again, we, we have the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the covenant of grace, that which the Lord Jesus Christ has completed and accomplished on our behalf. And so King David had died a long time before these words were given. And in Ezekiel 37 and verse 24, it says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, his people. They shall have one shepherd. Well, who is that? That's Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And then it says they'll dwell in the land. And if you look down at verse 26, he says, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And that shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. The nations also will know it. Or know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's the picture. Now let me tell you what he's not talking about here. He's not saying that in our day and time or the not too far future that there's going to be a physical temple built in Israel. Christ is going to come back and sit there and reign on the earth a thousand years. No. 
When you turn to the pages of the New Testament, you will find that these promises, the ones this one and ones like this, are fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. After all, when Jesus is born in Matthew 1.23, he is called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And in our text, in Matthew 8, uh, 28, verse 20, Jesus emphasizes this. If you haven't looked at it, uh, look at verse 20 of Matthew 28. He says, and lo, like stop, take note of this. And in the original, he emphasizes, he, he uses emphasis. He says, I myself, I go and eat. I myself am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not so much the world, it's the end of the age in the original. But Jesus says, He promises His presence. He says He will be with them and of course us today. And He wants us to know that. And He says even to the end of the age. Remember Ephesians 1 talks about the two ages, this present evil age and the age to come. The age to come is the new heavens and new earth. And so He promises again His presence. This is paradise restored. Paradise is, is not um, a love relationship between a man and a woman. When I was younger, there was a song called Paradise, and that's what the song was about, and that's really blasphemous. Paradise is the presence of God living in His full presence. And that's what the Bible promises. That is the promise of salvation. Remember the thief on the cross. This guy, he didn't know much And yet he knew that surely this man on the cross must be the Son of God. He believed in Jesus. And he went where? He went to paradise. Jesus promised that to him. In 2 Corinthians 12.4, the Apostle Paul is caught up, he says, into paradise. The Bible begins with paradise. Guess where it ends in Revelation chapter 2. In verse 7, Jesus says, To him who overcomes... He will eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. And so you say, that's great, Kevin. I, I really am hopeful. I, I like that. That sounds great. This promise of a restored fellowship with God. But how does that help me now? Here in this life. Well, that leads us to the second thing. And that is the power of His presence. Again, the New Testament picture is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. That God has said, I will be your God, you shall be my people, I will dwell in your midst. And so we turn to the pages of the New Testament And guess what analogy or comparison is used to describe the New Testament church? That of a temple. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that the church is a spiritual temple. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Now, maybe you've heard this verse used before to tell you guys you shouldn't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls who do. 
Because you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, violate the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? And he says that, he uses the plural, y'all, you all. The church is the temple of the living God. And so by the time we look at 1 Peter 2.5, he says we are living stones being built up a spiritual house. And we offer sacrifices of praise in the spiritual house. And so then this is the blessing of our redemption. Not that we get things in this life nice and easy, a comfortable life, but that we get God Himself. That is the blessing of our redemption, brothers and sisters. And that blessing, even now, is a powerful and energizing motive for our lives to live the Christian life. Now, Jesus has made this promise before Matthew 28. Just before His crucifixion, He's in the upper room. And in John chapter 14 and verse 3, He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus promises us that one day we will be with Him in His full presence again. Remember, He's taken upon a human body, and that... um, and inseparable. So forever he is one person with two natures. And one day we will see him as he is, the scripture tells us. But what about now? We don't have to turn there, but even in the Old Testament, God said this to his people of old, Israel, in Isaiah 41:10. He says, Fear not. God's people shouldn't fear. We fear God, respectfully so. But because God is ours and we are His, we are not to fear anything. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Why should we not fear? He says, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And how does He do this? How does He do it today for you and me who are Christians? And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, where is Jesus right now? Children, do you know where Jesus is? He's at God's right hand. Right? He's ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand. The right hand of the Father. But we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 1.14 tells us. That as Christians, we've not only been born again... But the Spirit of Christ now indwells us, and He will never leave us nor forsake us. In John 16 and verse 7, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to come. He said it was to our advantage that He went away, that He would send the Helper. And in Hebrews 13, in verses 5 and 6, it repeats that Old Testament promise. It says there, let your conduct be without covetousness, Be content with such things as you have. And then he says this for. Here's one way that we can be content, even with very little. 
4. He himself has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And so the presence of God in our lives, by His Spirit, all through and because of what Christ has done, is our help, it is the power for our lives. In fact, in Acts 1.8, there's the Great Commission as recorded by Luke. See, Jesus said a little more than what's here in Matthew 28. In uh, Acts 1, in verse 8, Jesus said, Go wait for me. And He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, unto the ends of the earth. So the Spirit's going to come, and when He comes, you will have power enabling you to do what I called you to do. You see the connection? And of course, we have the example of Christ Himself. We sing from the 16th Psalm earlier. Again, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2, he said that David was not talking about himself in that psalm. Why? Because his body is in the grave. It's all decayed. He was talking as a prophet. He spoke of Jesus to come. And in Psalm 16, 8, Jesus is recorded as saying, I have set the Lord always before me because, it, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And then He says, and your presence is fullness of joy. And so Jesus Himself, humanly speaking, He practiced the presence of God, His Heavenly Father. You know, when you read the pages of the Gospel, what, what is Jesus always doing? He's praying. He knew the Word of God. He's always going to Gethsemane or some garden, some place where He liked to pray. And so that's how we do it. That's how we set God before us. We have this consciousness of His presence in our lives. And we do that primarily by the means of grace and other than primarily Prayer and reading and meditating upon the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the presence of God in your life? And I'm not saying that He is the God who is there, you know, like the Greeks in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, to the unknown God. I'm not talking about that. It is a glorious thing. I, I shared this with the youth recently. When I walk out on a summer day, I see this gorgeous blue sky and these, blue, these white clouds. I look at that and, and I just get joyful. I say, Lord, that is awesome. But you see, He's not only the God who's there, He's my God and I'm His. Why? Because as Paul says in Galatians 2, He loved me and He gave Himself for me. The Lord Jesus Christ has come into my life and saved me. So I'm asking you if you know Jesus savingly this morning and know something of His presence in your life through His Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in the life of a Christian, it isn't healing. It isn't all the, the temporary gifts of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 shows us what that is. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and the like. And we have, as Paul puts it elsewhere, that peace that passes all understanding. And so we have the example of Christ Himself. Turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 4. Because I want, I want you to see how Paul benefited from this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. At this time, Paul, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. And uh, scholars think that this is before his, his death, perhaps. As history tells us, the Apostle Paul was beheaded because of his faith in Christ. And so in 2 Timothy 4, beginning of verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him. He's talking to Timothy. For he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, that is before the Romans, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. This obviously hurt the Apostle Paul. This obviously made an impression on the Apostle Paul. But like his Savior, when he was standing before the Roman army, at his trial, no one stood with him. All forsook him. And look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, a reference to Daniel. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's as if Paul, he notes that he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion at that moment, at that time, in that one instance. But that's not the glory. The glory is, is that the kingdom of which he is a part is not an earthly, temporary, political kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, Daniel 2 says, is an eternal kingdom that outlives every other kingdom. And so for us to benefit from this and to profit from it, we must believe it and have faith in the promises of God. That this life is not in it. And so, Paul can say elsewhere, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Christ strengthens him by His Spirit. And so as we seek to do whatever it is that God has called us to do, and as we seek to be the church that Christ has called us to be, and to make disciples, to preach the Gospel, to teach those who come into the church all things that Christ has commanded, we need to know that He is with us. And so that's why He tells us. And perhaps you're here this morning... And you need to be reminded that you are not alone. You might feel alone. You're surrounded by other Christians right now. But you might feel alone. You're going through hard times. You're going through the trials of life. Christ says, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? That's what He says. As Paul says, neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain, the Apostle Paul says. And so then this promise of salvation, that when we die and are translated into glory, that we will enjoy the full presence of God is for us to enjoy today. You see, we don't have the full presence of God in this life, even though we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But we will enjoy that full presence when we go to be with the Lord. Right now, we just get a taste of it along the way. And what we enjoy and that fellowship we have with God in this life is like the difference between a protein bar and a Snickers or a Kit Kat bar. Breaking off a piece of that Kit Kat bar, you know, that's what the world offers for your three o'clock afternoon snack. It's going to hold you over. It's going to get you through the afternoon. Sure, it can do that, but you're going to crash too because of all the sugar in it. So these are the crumbs of the world. But if you take a protein bar, maybe a protein shake without any sugar, it's not going to taste that great, really. I mean, they try, but it's not great. But it's what you need. And you eat it. And you're sustained. You have energy and power to go through the day. The world offers Snickers bars. Whether it's humanistic psychology, positive thinking, or whatever else is out there. It might help a little bit, temporarily. But we have the protein bar. We have that which we need and that which sustains us. And so when we think about this fellowship with the Lord and what Christ promises here, uh, this teaching was part of the legacy of a guy named Henry F. Light. L-Y-T-E. Henry Light was born in 18th century Scotland during the French Revolution, tumultuous times. Uh, his parents separated. This is the, this is the uh, 18th century. His parents separated when he was seven or eight years old. His mother left and he never saw her again in his life. Not long after that, his father dropped him and his younger brother off to what amounts to be an orphanage. And evidently his father forgot about them. So a little later in life, he wanted to go into medicine, but he eventually became an Anglican priest. He was converted after that, interestingly. And he always, after that, struggled with his health. He was sick and he had to travel to get to warmer places. Uh, but he was married. He had a faithful wife who was by his side. Except for when they went to church. She went to the Methodist church. He went to the Anglican church. But she followed him wherever they went. And near the end of his life, well, let me tell you this first. He spent most of his life in a town called Brixham, England, where he ministered to this fishing village that received him warmly. And he stayed there the rest of his life. And it came about time for him to die. And he had thought of this poem off and on through his later years. And finally he sat down to write this poem. And he looked back at his life of suffering a life of ill health, a life of devastation, a life of desertion by his own parents. And he said, I, I've been blessed. 
How? I have been blessed by the divine prophet, the divine presence of God in my life. And so he wrote that poem. And that poem is a hymn. And that hymn is Abide with Me. And in that poem, he says this to his heavenly Father, when, when other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless abide with me. That's the strength of the presence of Christ in your life. That you can endure trials. Because as it was with the friends of Daniel, there is one in the furnace like the Son of Man. He's with us in the good times and in the bad times. Do you need help this morning? I know where my help comes from. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Maker of heaven and earth. And the Lord of heaven and earth says, I am with you even to the end of the age. Do you believe that? And it takes faith to believe that. And so whether it's missions, discipleship, a day of diapers, or deadlines, we need to know the presence of Christ in our lives. And it starts with calling Him as your Savior, as your Lord, as your Master. So have you done that? Have you bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's where it all starts. And so may we here at Providence be known as those who know the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who know His powerful presence in our lives. May that be our joy, because in His presence is fullness of joy. And when people come in here and worship with us, may they say, surely God is in this place. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Your presence in our lives. The presence of Christ through the Spirit of Christ. We pray that You would give us joy in spite of our weaknesses, our ailments, and the trials of life. And may we be, as Thomas Manton put it, the sparrow who can sing in the winter. And we pray that as a result, you would be glorified, that others would come to know Christ savingly and do the same. We pray in his name. Amen.